Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. You'll be hearing a lot more from me when I'm back in March. But for now, here's today's show. All right. Thank you, Scott. And welcome to The Exchange. I am Brian Sullivan. We have so much ahead. Here's what's coming up on a busy Friday. Dow 29,000 is here. Well, it was. But that may not be the number you want to pay attention to in this market. We'll tell you what that number is and why it matters so much to your money. Plus, clowns and monkeys. Not words you want to hear to describe airplane engineers, but that's exactly what Boeing employees said. Details on some damning internal emails there. And Bloomberg's billions. Will money alone be enough to help the former mayor in his effort to get the president out of the White House? We'll talk about all that and more, but let's begin with today's markets. And Seema Modi, we had Dow 29,000 so briefly. So a new record, but we're not there exactly. right now. Exactly. We started on a high note. And by the way, Brian, the Dow hit 28,000 on November 15th. So that means less than two months to get to 29,000. But to your point, pulling off those highs, we're at 28,883, uh, down 72 points. So we're actually at the lows of the session, S&P and NASDAQ, also lower. What's leading us to the downside? It's actually the industrials. And uh, a couple different names there, General Electric, Deer, even some of the defense names that moved higher earlier this week on those Middle East tensions, uh, pulling back from those highs. We have L3 Harris down 1%. Although one stock we really want to highlight today is Beyond Meat, now up nearly 30% just this week, on track for one of its best weeks in months. And it comes after McDonald's earlier this week confirmed that it is testing its Beyond Meat burgers at more locations. In fact, in Canada, it also follows another report from Reuters that its competitor, Beyond Meat's competitor, Impossible Foods, was dropping efforts to make a deal with McDonald's. The stock up another 7% today. Putting all this into context, Brian, the stock is still down about 60% from its all-time high. Back to you. All right, Seema Modi, we'll see you in a bit. Thank you very much, Seema. All right, so let's begin your news Friday with today's jobs number. The U.S. economy added 145,000 jobs overall last month. Unemployment stayed remarkably low, and even the much-beaten-up retail world added 41,000 jobs. But it wasn't all milk and honey. The manufacturing jobs number continued its decline. The question is this, will jobs grow or go? In 2020, let's bring in CNBC's senior economics reporter Steve Leisman and Andrew Chamberlain. He is chief economist over at Glassdoor. Steve, start with you. A Goldilocks number or more negative than good? Yeah, it depends a little bit. I hate to say this on what happens next month because let's do the tail of the tape, right? 266 in November, way outsized blowout report. So we came back and had a little give back of 145,000. Looking into the details, I see a little softness in there. One of the things I'm looking at, uh, Brian, is hours worked. And that's been kind of trending down. There are some things in there, both the wage number and the hours worked, that tell me there may be a little softness underlying the jobs market. Not the kind of tightness you would expect with the unemployment rate where it is right now. So I'm going to reserve judgment and want to see what happens with the trend here. Because you have these two very disparate months here. I don't like some of the softness I see in December, but not yet ready to pass over. And that's the weird thing, Andrew. I mean, listen, if there's three 
workers going for the same job, the employer has the wage power. If there's one worker going for three jobs, theoretically, the employee would have that wage power. That's kind of where we are, but yet wages are stubbornly stuck. How come? Well, this jobs report was kind of a microcosm for the entire last decade. Middle of the road job gains and pretty disappointing pay growth. Part of the reason you see slow pay growth last month is when you add a lot of retail jobs, most of those are low-paying roles, and that's what happens. Also, you got to remember, this is likely to bounce back in January and February when a bunch of minimum wages kick in at the state level. Um, on Glassdoor, when we look, hold the composition of jobs steady and omit the effect of those retail jobs, we see steady, uh, steady pay gains and slightly up. So I think this month was likely a blip. Andrew, I would just also add to that when you take away the manufacturing jobs, that also tends to keep a lid on, on wage growth. Uh, but, but I'm going to agree with Brian on this in the sense that you do not have wage behavior that is commensurate with the tightness we're seeing in the jobs market. We, we had some good, good wage growth. It kind of flattened out. And there's this differential between the workers and the, and the bosses in terms of pay raises there. One issue might be you had these tax incentive, pay, these payments that came as incentives after the tax cuts. Those have rolled off, so, and they haven't been, been reinstituted. Andrew, how do we calculate the numbers? The reason I ask is about health care because, of a, let's say, a company X can afford to give everybody a, a 10% raise effectively. But the health care premiums go up 8%. Well, you're just, they're paying all the, quote, raise in the health care premium. So the worker is getting a bigger benefit, but they don't see it in their take-home pay and think they're getting shafted. That's exactly right. Compensation is a big pie. It's not just your paycheck. It's all the benefits included. Your retirement plan, your health insurance, paid time off, and everything else. So there has been a recent shift in recent decades away from cash because it's taxed toward non-taxed benefits. And rising health insurance is essentially more of a compensation cost the employer's got to pay. It leaves them less cash left over to pay wages. So that's definitely part of the story. Brian, I just want to come back to your initial question about being Goldilocks. From a Federal Reserve point of view, I think it is because you have... Decent job growth. This, this number of 145, let's remember, is at least 50,000 above the high end of the entrance to the workforce from a demographic standpoint. When we talk about the people who are entering the workforce, we're putting those to work and we're even drawing some in at a level like this. Without the wage growth, look, the Fed actually wants to see some, some wage inflation, hasn't really been seeing it. So this speaks to a Fed that is on hold and going to remain on hold and actually gives it a little bit even more breathing room. I don't know when we start to think about 2021, but right now the odds on is, is we're, we're, we're on hold through the summer. And maybe for the rest of the year. It sounds like you've already started thinking about 2021, Mark. I'm thinking about the summer, Brian. The summer. (laughs) I'm thinking about 2112, the great rush album. Steve Leishman, Andrew Chamberlain, good stuff, guys. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Pleasure. All right, let's turn now to your money. As Seema told you, the Dow hit 29,000 in earlier trading. A pretty momentous occasion, but maybe not the key number that you want to watch. If you look at the weight of individual stocks in the S&P 500, the top ones, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook, Well, those five stocks make up 17% of the S&P 500 weighting. Think about that, about a sixth of the entire pie. If anything were to happen to those companies, could the rest of the S&P 500 go with them or can they make it up? 
With us now, our friend and the legend himself, Raf Akampura, Director of Technical Research of Altera Capital Partners, and Michael Schumacher, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Ralph, I want to, okay, I, the technicals are in the favor. I know we'll get to that. That's where you live. However, is there anything to this idea, and we've talked about it, maybe I'm a broken record and I'm, maybe I'm 100% wrong, but when you've got this hugely <laughs> top-heavy market, can the overall markets continue to go up if those five stocks, for whatever reason, eventually start to get sold? Well, Brian, the problem, I happen to really like the Dow because it's a very popular indicator. But the critics are right when they say it's price sensitive. And that's the problem that you're pointing out. Now, we technicians like to look at a thing called the breadth of the market. It doesn't give you the percent or it doesn't tell you how many points up or down. It just gives direction. What went up versus what went down. If you look at that indicator, that's still very, very strong. And that's a broad indication of the market. So... I understand the complaints that the people have with the Dow, but relax. I think it's okay. I think it's okay. Michael Schumacher, are you happy with, I know this is not, again, necessarily where you live, but I'm going to ask you as a guy that runs money, is this a good place? Is this a structurally sound stock market? I'll tell you, Brian, it's interesting. We just spent three days hearing from clients at various conferences for Wells Fargo, and overwhelmingly the sector of choice was equities versus pretty much anything in the bond market. So, Is it fundamentally strong? I'm not sure that matters so much. The bigger point is investors like it. Is it more just then, Michael, that that, that Tina idea, there is no alternative? You're buying stocks because I think the technical term is nothing else is giving you squat. (laughs) I got that sense, frankly. A lot of people think perhaps the Fed is on hold. Maybe Treasury yields go up a bit at the same time. Corporate bonds cheapen somewhat versus Treasuries. So you almost back into being long stocks. That's the sense I got from clients this week. Okay, Ralph, when you look at the technicals, obviously they've been strong. Do you see them remaining strong? Well, you know, before I could talk about the new year, 2020, I'd like to talk about the last couple of months of last year. Uh, There's a phrase that I like to use, rotation is the lifeline of every bull market. And that's exactly what happened, Brian. We started to see rotation into the laggards, like financials came on strong, merging markets came on strong. Gold and silver, um, European markets. So I think the the fertile ground of low inflation, low interest rates is what's going to keep the secular bull market alive. But we need new ideas, and I have them, and that's that's good. The only problem I have is that the, some of these stocks, and you mentioned the the leaders in the Dow. I mean, they're up on they're defying the laws of gravity. I get a nosebleed when I see the angle which which they're accelerating. So they need a little bit of a pause. They, you, you do think that would be healthy, Ralph, to have a little bit of a pause, especially in these FANG stocks oh. and these big techs that not only are the, the heads of the indexes, but basically control every major ETF as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of ETFs, uh, look at the XLF financials. If you take out the individual stocks like Bank of America, Citicorp, uh, J.P. Morgan, they the individual components look good. So. There's a lot yep. of things out there that I think on a pullback would be ideal purchases. Michael, when you guys at Wells Fargo look out, where's a good investing opportunity in 2020? Yeah, we're actually pretty much in line with the clients. We're not terribly positive on the bond market. We think the Fed is about done. A little bit bearish on rates. For instance, I'll give you a couple numbers. We've got the 10-year Treasury going to 210, maybe 220 in Q1, and then sort of sitting there. So it's not a terribly attractive bond environment. So from a bond perspective, we'd say what you want to do is stay relatively short in maturity. 
If you think yields are going up, don't go too far out. And on the equity side, our team is relatively bullish. Not screaming bulls, but they tend to be pretty positive at this point. All right, pretty positive. Ralph Hoffman, Akampura, great to see you, my friend. Michael Schumacher as well. Thank you. Guys, thank thank you. you. We'll have you again on CNBC. All right, don't go anywhere. We are just getting started here on The Exchange. Here's what else is coming up. Coming up. Shocking internal emails at Boeing show a culture of dismissive behavior against the FAA and airlines. We'll explore the fallout. Plus, Mike Bloomberg is on a spending spree, but he may be missing one key component in his approach. And so bad it's good? Two analysts using the same line to describe why you should buy one beaten down name. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. And welcome back to The Exchange. Boeing back in the spotlight. Internal documents released by the company show that employees discussing efforts to manipulate regulators and having little faith in some aspects of the 737 MAX airplane. Here's a sample from some of those emails. One employee writing, quote, This airline is designed by clowns who are in turn supervised by monkeys. Another employee saying, quote, would you put your family on a max simulator trained aircraft? I wouldn't. And then again, I still haven't been forgiven by God for the covering up I did last year. End quote. No idea what that's in reference to. Boeing saying the communications do not reflect the company they are and need to be and that they are unacceptable. Let's discuss the implications with our own Phil Beau and Aviation Week Network Senior Business Editor Michael Bruno. All right, Phil, first to you, just when you think sort of it can't get worse internally at Boeing, now you have these documents being revealed, and right. they are, I think, fair to say, pretty damning. They are, and I think Boeing's approach on this is, A, let's get ahead of this. These documents were turned over to regulators and to the DOJ back in December, so they knew that at some point this was going to come out. And the new CEO, Dave Calhoun, and the interim CEO, Greg Smith, who is uh, going to be returning to the role of CFO uh, starting next week, they decided, you know what, get it out. There's no sense in keeping these any longer. Flush it out. And what's noteworthy here, which will be lost in all of the clowns and monkey headlines, is the fact that the FAA came out relatively quickly, within about 45 minutes, and said, look, there's no new safety risk in these emails. Are they damning? Yes. Does it make Boeing look really bad? Yes. But there's no new smoking gun within these documents. Yeah, Michael Bruno, I mean, your take on this story, because listen, people are piling on Boeing around the 737 MAX, but let's be fair. Boeing has designed airplanes that have been safe for 40 years, and they design a ton of U.S. military equipment as well. Is there some, you think, in some ways, maybe a a piling on on Boeing here, or do they deserve this? There is a little bit of a piling on for sure. I mean, Boeing can't seem to get out of its own way right now and making bad headlines. 
and they've given us the new phrase for the year. I think clowns and monkeys is unfortunately going to stay with us and may get used in in other elements because there are some other stories happening this year. But, um, you know, it doesn't do anything for the safety and the questions of recertifying the aircraft going forward, as the FAA has said. But this definitely ends the debate about whether Boeing had other concerns besides safety in the design of the latest MAX aircraft uh, when it came to getting um, uh, certification from regulators and, of course, selling it to airline customers. There's no more debate about whether there was a change or something wrong or different happening inside the Boeing culture. These emails are proof of that. Yeah, they are. They are, Michael. One more to you. I mean, do you think that that the airlines need the 737 MAX. The longer this goes, and Phil's talked about this, they're sitting out in the desert. Yes, they are being maintained. But if you're United, if you're American, if you're Southwest, you've been getting along okay with problems, but okay without the jet. It could be more headaches to bring the jet back into service, even if and when it is recertified, no? Yeah, absolutely. Um, They can keep going and sort of limping along, they being the airlines. They can limp along a little more. Um, They keep uh, canceling flights and pushing it back in in their portfolio. And I think even Phil, a hap tip to Phil, uh, for the reporting he's done on the number of flights getting canceled in total, um, that effect piles on. And eventually these airlines, when their profit is very tenuous, uh, it's only the past couple of years these airlines have been making a profit, And they needed the MAX in order to keep making money. So they definitely need the MAX back in service. And they really want Boeing to pull through. You know, I I think uh, even on CNBC the other day, I saw Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta, talking about he's really rooting for Dave Calhoun. And he doesn't even buy the MAXs right now, but he's got Boeing's in his portfolio. Everybody needs Boeing to come back and be the strong Boeing that it was. Phil? Well, you know, I would echo what Michael was saying. And I would also go as far as to say they need the MAX because it is crucial to future growth. The future growth relies on having the, the new aircraft that they have ordered, that they have planned for, and everything that goes with that new aircraft, which is greater efficiency, greater profitability. And if you don't have the MAX, you know, yeah, you can limp along, but at some point you will need new airplanes. And where are you going to go? You are not going to go to Airbus. You will need the 737 MAX. So I know well, a lot of people well, Phil, like to say, Phil, well, nobody's going to fly. On that. Is the, is the, and I don't know this. It's a true question. Is the MAX the only 737 model currently being built? Or could you just simply say, it's I'll the, take the 900 the or the 800 instead? Nope. It's the only one that's currently being built. It doesn't mean that there aren't other 737s out there. A lot of 737NGs are out there. They build a ton of them. I think 8,000 of them uh, between 96 and 2017, early 2018. So, yeah, there are a lot of other 737s out there. But it's time for this next generation. They have already changed over the production line, the supply chain. You just can't strip that out and say, well, you know what, let's go back and build the old model. By also, remember, Brian, those old models have smaller engines and are less fuel efficient. Yeah, I just want to follow up on one thing that uh, Phil was saying, and he said before, which is underlying all of this, the growth in the aerospace, the commercial aviation world, is all about meeting that backlog. Both Boeing and Airbus have this six to seven year roughly backlog of work that they're going to do. Most of it is 
is building and supplying narrow bodies to foreign airlines, specifically in Asia Pacific. That's growth to feed the growing middle classes overseas. And in order to do that, you've got to have the MAX yeah. in service. And they are building technically other kinds of 737s, although the the, the yeah. now soon-to-be older version, NG, is, is getting uh, worked out of the portfolio. But um, they basically can't turn around. It's not that easy. Oh, well, well, I guess it sounds like one way ahead. They better hope that it works out. Michael Bruno and Phil Lebeau, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Coming up, investors in this stock have certainly had a terrible 12 months, lost nearly 30 percent of its value. But now we're saying that could be a good thing for you. We'll explain. Plus, why Michael Bloomberg could become the most important person to defeat Trump, even if he does not win the nomination. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back. We have some breaking news to bring you. Alphabet's chief legal officer, David Drummond, will retire from the company as of January 31st, the end of the month. Now, Drummond has been with the company for 18 years, and he is among the Alphabet executives involved in a probe that resulted from a shareholder lawsuit against the company. Remember, cultural issues have flared up at Google over the last few years, sexual misconduct being one of them. As I said, Shareholders have sued the board. That was late January for allegedly covering up sexual misconduct, naming Drummond as well as Android co-founder Andy Rubin, who was given an exit package of $90 million by Alphabet after an internal investigation determined the claims against him were credible. We'll continue to look into this and bring you more news as we get it. But Drummond is out at Alphabet. A big developing story there and a big name out west. Deirdre Bosa, thank you very much. All right, now let's get to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue. Brian, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says the House will take steps next week to send articles of impeachment to the Senate for President Trump's trial. In a letter to Democratic colleagues, she said that she will be consulting with them on Tuesday on how to proceed further. White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow telling reporters the economy looks strong. This after the Dow reached a record 29,000 level earlier this morning. The rising stock market is indicating a lot of business and consumer confidence, in my judgment, and I think it's forecasting essentially an even stronger economy in the coming year. That's the way I read that. And the economy looks good to me today. Leonardo DiCaprio's environmental organization is donating $3 million to wildfire relief efforts in Australia. He co-chairs Earth Alliance, which was launched last year to fight climate change. 
The Australian wildfires have killed at least 26 people and scorched some 20 million acres. You are up to date. That's the news update, Brian. I'll send it back to you. Yeah, such tragedy out there, it Sue. It's, it's awful. awful. All right, Sue, thank you very much. All right, meantime, here's what else is ahead on The Exchange. Ahead, so bad it's good. That's what Wall Street is saying about one retailer. Streaming hits a new milestone. Here come injectable vitamins and squeezing the lime. It's all coming up on The Exchange. So bad it's good, losing juice, and Contessa apparently isn't the only one in the world secretly streaming Def Leppard albums. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here now with their take are Robert Frank, Eric Chemi, and the aforementioned Contessa Pour Brewer. some sugar on me. No, I prefer salt. First up, apparently Victoria's Secret is that sales stink, but shares of its parent company L Brands are higher today because it got a double dose of optimism on the street. Get this. Since the company cut its earnings forecast yesterday, both Wells Fargo and Deutsche Bank issued positive reports. In fact, they were almost identical. Both of their headlines were, is it so bad, it's good. Shares have had a rough year, down about 25%. Robert Frank, either the analysts are just looking over each other's shoulders like kids in high school, or maybe they actually believe it's so bad, it's good. What do you think? I don't see what's good. I understand what's so bad. That it might but, get broken up well, and sold but, off. Okay, okay, so uh, Bath... Bath and Body Body Works Works, pink and does well, does well. But Victoria's Secret down 12 percent. That means that somebody there's some investors out there who you think are going to even invest in this thing. I think the also the other interesting thing, which no one wants to talk about because it's a little sensitive, is Les Wexner going through all this Epstein stuff. He's running both companies. He has to be at, at worst distracted by all this stuff. Customers know it. Everyone knows that that was part of the storyline. It can't help. But I think from an investment point of view, so bad it's good. Yeah, a lot of these analysts, we know they're all looking at each other, and we know they're a little late to the game sometimes. So the fact is, okay, well, we missed the stock going down. Maybe it is the time to buy. I wouldn't trust them as a leading. But the whole thesis is basically sell off parts of the company and it looks better. But how does it get better? How does that make it better? Well, one plus one equals two and a half. Bath and Body Works, they yeah. think, is a bright spot. But here's the thing. Jeffries yesterday said the brand is broken. This is a bad beast. Get rid of it. And they pointed to perhaps what could be maximum. Well, you had one analyst calling it candle penetration is maximum. What is wrong? For, for what Bath. is wrong with this Victoria's Secret? Yeah. What is wrong with Victoria's Secret? I don't think guys Secret? should be talking about <laughs> I'm asking Secret. Contessa. No, only Contessa should. Yeah. What, what do you want to By the way, we can talk about it, too, because theoretically a lot of the shoppers yeah. are men who are shopping for their significant others. In a very awkward thing. But, but, but well, there's a couple things that are wrong with this. One is their association with mall facilities, right? What we're seeing broadly is retail outlets that... Uh, belong in malls are struggling. Two, the brand may have been worn out. Maybe it's past its prime. I don't know. Maybe it's going to come around. Look at Champion. Champion for a long time was a cheap brand, and now all the kids want to get in on that. There may be a way to turn around Victoria's Secret and Pink, and they have a plan to include more diverse models in their advertising, not to focus so much on only the sexy uh, apparel. Can they do it? I don't know. And can they just depend on... Bath and Body Works to drive their revenue yeah. if, th- if that penetration has totally maxed out. Okay, topic two, Lime is losing some juice. Lime is the electric scooter startup. It's laying off about 100 employees and pulling out of a dozen markets as its struggles become profitable. 
This comes as new data shows it's literally been a bumpy ride for e-scooters. Get this. Emergency room visits for electric scooter injuries jumped more than 200 percent between 2014 and 2018. Although, Contessa Brewer, I hate these kind of stats because when you start at zero because there were no electric scooters, of course the rate of injury is going to go up because anything above zero is up. Hold, please. If you look at the fact that they're only looking at hospitalizations, this is significant. They're not talking about you go to your doctor, you go to urgent care. They're not talking about what happened in my family where my sister put my son on a scooter in San Diego. He went, reached up and put the accelerator on and they both took a dive. Thank God it wasn't in the street, but it was very nearly there. That's not in any of these statistics. It's no wonder they're having regulatory problems nationwide. You know, the other thing that's interesting is we've all heard stories. We all have friends that have gotten into accidents on these things. They're clearly very dangerous. The insurance on it, like it's it's not homeowners insurance, it's not auto insurance, bicycle insurance, it's medical insurance, health insurance. A lot of people don't have any coverage if you get into an accident on one of these things, are you hit somebody with liability? What happens to you? I've seen in Santa Monica. I've seen people take swings at people on the scooters. Because they're so resentful of right. the scooters, they're sort of swatting at them as they go by. And with all the injury numbers, we don't have injury numbers for pedestrians or people that are collateral damage in the whole scooter wars, which we know is also a big number. Now there's a scooter war? There is. They now. make the bicycle people not seem as bad. That's bicycle. true, which is pretty is there impressive. Bicycle because they're crazy. Is that like a cyclists? Bicycle people. Bicycle people. Don't go in there. It's bicycle people, man. <laughs> Somebody's going to hit you with some lycra. I'm glad your family's okay, by the way, Contessa. All right, then this. It's cliche, but I'll say it anyway. The next stat is music to an artist's ears. According to Nielsen, U.S. music streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music jumping 30% last year, topping 1 trillion streams for the first time ever. But again, you're growing every year because you didn't have it 10 years ago. Streaming now accounts for 82% of all music consumption in the U.S. Sales of physical albums dropping 19% last year. Anybody? I still buy albums. Contessa Brewer, do you still buy albums? I haven't bought an album in more than a decade. Not like a physical album, or did you buy it on iTunes where you paid $9.99 and downloaded it? I can't remember the last entire album that I... Uh, that I paid for. I've paid for individual songs. Yeah. But it's, not, mine was yesterday. it's amazing that uh, not, yesterday I bought an album. 9% of people still do. I had a telltale moment uh, this past weekend where I was cleaning out the basement. I came upon, I know you'll relate to this, my giant collection of CDs, right? Oh, yeah. And I was like, What's it? I should throw them out. Don't. Right. Give but why? Me. Why should I keep them? I didn't know why I should keep them. I kept them because, because you own the music. It's a library of you your life. When you By the way, when, it's on when you, upload it to when you die, everything you bought online, if you bought, goes away. Yeah, it's a temporary license. But yeah. you're dead. I want my but kids to. I want my kids His to know kids don't want that, that dad like yeah, music. Do you, you keep know. books? Do you keep photographs? No, I go to the library. All my photos. You go to the, the library. Phone. I don't have any Are stuff at home. Are you a bicycle person? <laughs> I don't have any stuff at home. I don't have CDs. It is true. Books. With CDs, nothing. you can. You got CDs? I got nothing. By the way, all my CDs got stuff in the attic. His whole life is in the clouds. And when I'm dead, what do I care? My kids don't want any of that junk. Yeah. What are you watching? What do you have an eight track in your Camaro? No, no, I just have the radio. It's all. Oh, FM? There's, there's no stuff. I got FM, AM, Sirius. I got all of the You got buttons. it all. 97.3 no Light FM. What Why are you do you care to? when you die what your kids because are Because it's a reference of your life. It's like anything else. I agree. Which is why Plus I kept it, by them. The way, think- by the way, here's what I want you I want every Look at me. Everybody in, in America. Come in closer. Come in clo- the, come to me. Extreme come to close up. Here's the thing. Go home tonight. Play streaming services on your stereo. Okay? Yeah. 
Then put a CD in, if you still have a CD player, and keep the volume the same. Yep. It'll blow your speakers out. You know why? Because the sound quality on LPs and CDs, we forgot. It's true. There's sound what do you mean? quality. So everyone's it's, listening they're hearing music earbuds. you've never heard. Most people can't. Look at these ears. I hear, I hear everything, Chimmy. Most people can't tell the difference. Yeah. Most people don't have those ears. We- <laughs> well, are, isn't that as perceptive By the as way, yours? I just want to be clear. According to like you know, a million years from now, we're going to lose our pinkies, and our ears will be larger and pointier. So you, I just feel like I'm just sort of, of ahead of the curve. Facts in that head of yours. Will we evolve bigger thumbs because <laughs> of texting? Of right. All right. Finally, apparently, it's very difficult to swallow a pill or chew a gummy. We're being facetious, but it's so much so that vitamins via drip are coming to a spa or hotel near you. Rahel Solomon is live in New York City to save this segment. Rahel. Hi, Brian. Yes, I think some people just prefer, I think it's more efficient than an actual gummy. But yes, here at the Clean Market in Midtown, New York, you can buy all sorts of health and wellness products. You can go to cryotherapy. You can get infrared. And yes, everyday New Yorkers are also getting vitamins injected into them. Say you want to lose some weight. There's a shot for that. Say you're feeling a little fatigued. There's also a shot for that. So here at the NutriDrip Bar, those shots are actually administered by medical professionals, but this service is also not without its critics. For example, we spoke to Dr. David Katz of Yale who says, anytime you are injecting something into your body, there are medical risks associated with that. That said, this may be here to stay because there are some pretty big names banking on this service. For example, Wynn Hotel, starting early next year, the company tells us, they're going to be offering this to some of their guests. Also, Equinox, they already offer it at the hotel in Hudson Yards. And the company tells us they're planning to slowly roll this out at some of the gyms in the city. So, yes, vitamins via trip coming soon to a spa or hotel near you. Chami, this has your name written all oh, over me? it. No, 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 no. I mean, look, I'm very tired How these days. How can he find it on his I, bike? I, 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 I have a sedan, <laughs> excuse me. I have two kids under two. In your old I got a sedan and a station wagon at home. Anything that will keep me awake during the day. You're all for it. Uh, if this IV will work, otherwise they, it's will make it fun of your ears. They have something for if you're feeling a little worn down, Chemi, if you're feeling a little tired, a little fatigued, they have a shot for that. So they, they got you covered. I might have to make so an appointment tomorrow. So they do. So does somebody on the corner. I mean, yeah. like, <laughs> right. <laughs> If you, if you need something to get you going, well, there's plenty of people that will help you out with that. I mean, the thing is, this is a really high-end offering. You've got, hey, right, Rahel, isn't Win in Las Vegas offering this up to their clients? It is, yeah, they are. And so here it is a bit of a higher-end offering, right? So the cheapest service right now, I think, was about $115. The most expensive was almost $600. But, yes, what? it is for a, a, a certain clientele. Six, yeah. What are they injecting gold into your bloodstream? I, mean, I did this like a decade ago. My a aunt, decade. you look great. My, my aunt was yeah. When they had those metal ne- metal foot long needles. Yeah. <laughs> Rahel, does it does it work? I mean, medically, do, is there any evidence that any of these these things work? So, Robert, that's a really interesting point. Dr. David Katz, again, telling us that there is no medical evidence to prove that this works recreationally. Now, there are valid medical purposes for treatments like this, recreationally and for beauty treatments and wellness treatments, that science is a lot more murky. But I spoke to a client a short time ago who's been doing this for eight years. That even predates this company. He said he's been doing this for eight years. He said when he is feeling a little, you know, he's had a great night the night before, he said, for sure this works. I said, could it be a placebo? He said, absolutely not. So I guess it depends on who you ask. Well, hangovers are caused in part by deficiency of vitamin B, right? 
And so, so if you get a vitamin B drip, it stands to Or just take help. a vitamin B pill. I know, but it doesn't get absorbed like that. And then that. turn off the lights when you go to the bathroom. And it's all kinds of colors. And you save yourself $600. There you go. So you can buy more Ra- Rahel Solomon, you thank very you very much. This is how you... Brian, but... <laughs> I'm still trying to find a leaded sure. gas station for Chemi's Oldsmobile, but it's fine, Eric. You know, it's a Subaru. This is how you know the economy is doing well when people can spend $600 yeah. for something like that. That means you know the economy's fine. Of Keep course. Stocks. It's a Subaru. We have two Subarus, excuse me. It's one measure. You're a Subaru. Oh, yeah. Eric, Rahel, Robert, Contessa, please put on some music tonight. LPs. Stream it. CD. I don't even have a CD player. Up next, why former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg plans to campaign through the general election, even if he loses the Democratic nomination. Talk about that and what it will cost him. And always, as a reminder, you can watch us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're also available on LP and tape. We're back after this. (laughs) Stream it. Former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg's road to the White House is through a massive ad blitz, not early primary states. Bloomberg has now spent over $160 million of his own dollars, including $11 million on a Super Bowl ad buy. It's about $25 million per week, and it could top a billion dollars by Election Day. Bloomberg is also beefing up his digital presence, hiring dozens of former Facebook and Google employees. But is this billion-dollar ad blitz going to make a dent in the polls and be enough to achieve his ultimate goal? to remove President Trump from the White House. More on Bloomberg's war chest and the role of social media with Republican strategist Mike Murphy and Alex Stamos. He is former chief security officer at Facebook. I'm going to start with you, Mike. Um, What is Mike Bloomberg's actual path here? He can't get into a debate because he doesn't take contributions. I mean, is there another way for him to be in front of the American public where he gets to challenge his competitors face to face? Well, right now he's doing it with paid advertising. In the past, other candidates have tried the late start where you avoid Iowa and New Hampshire, and it hasn't worked out, mostly because they ran out of money, and the momentum went to a candidate who started winning early. Because Bloomberg doesn't need donors, he can have a much bigger presence late than anybody's had. That's half the plan, but he needs two other things to happen. He needs one of the more progressive candidates to dominate early, and with the new polling showing Bernie doing quite well, Maybe that'll happen, but he needs an early failure in the process to be discovered. Now, the money gives him a platform to be discoverable, but we'll see if he's discovered. There are other factors. It kind of has to be almost a perfect storm for him, but he has the resources to take a real swing at it. He does. And Alex, in, in your mind, is the digital strategy, and we heard all about the sort of super secretive firm that he may have established in Virginia, is the digital strategy spot on? Well, it certainly thinks, looks like Bloomberg believes it's going to be. And, and you got to remember, this is a guy who built an incredibly successful business empire based upon his mastery of data. In this case, he is hiring dozens and dozens of people from Silicon Valley, the exact people who built the digital ad networks that now he wants to use. And he, he caught a big break yesterday. Yesterday, my former friends at Facebook uh, made a decision to not limit political ad targeting, which means that his capability to build a huge technical team and to gather up data on hundreds of millions of voters is could actually be extremely effective in pushing messages to many, many people, either small groups or perhaps even individual voters um, on networks like Facebook and Google. You know, OK, I'm going to go on. I'm going to go crazy here, Mike, and just bear with me, because everybody's saying Mike Bloomberg is going after Donald Trump, which he is. I worked with Mike Bloomberg's company for 12 and a half years. They make their money Mm -hmm. selling to Wall Street their expensive Bloomberg terminal. 
Is there any way in your mind you can believe that Mike Bloomberg is not only going after Trump, but perhaps he's going after Elizabeth Warren or any other candidate that is proposing any kind of a trading transaction tax? Because if we get that, it will likely severely damage his Bloomberg terminal empire. Well, that, that's a couple levels deeper insight than I've got. And I may be completely wrong and out of the woods. But if you talk about well, trading yeah. volume going down, you talk about fewer terminals, you talk about the hit to the company he built sure. from scratch by himself in the back of a taxi, putting together his first machine on the way to a meeting with Merrill Lynch. You know, I think the main motor is he is uncomfortable with Warren and Bernie as the candidates uh, on the Democratic side if they were nominated, both ideologically and as a matter of practical politics. I think his biggest focus is defeating Trump, and the issue set he spent the most time on is climate change and doing something about guns and education reform, those three things. So I, 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 don't, I, I think he's rich enough not to be that micro-concerned uh, about a specific impact on one part of her tax plan. But there's no doubt one of the reasons that Bloomberg's running here is his fear that a Bernie or an Elizabeth could beat Biden and Buttigieg in the early states, and he's setting himself up in the March mega primaries with that big bankroll to be famous enough to take him on. I think Alex, that's the core he's of what the, he's trying to do. He's got the money. Does he have any chance Mike Bloomberg becomes president of the United States? I, you know, that, that seems unlikely to me. That's more of Mike's area. What, what I will say is, remember, 2020 is not just the presidential election. There are 435 House races. There are over 30 Senate races. There are governors. There's local legislatures. All of those races are can be affected by online ads. And in fact, whoever the Democratic nominee was going to be was always going to have a large digital operation. But what Bloomberg is doing here is if he creates the, the dominant digital ad advertising firm for the Democratic Party, then he makes himself a kingmaker in all of those other races. And so even if he ends up with a candidate he doesn't like as the presidential candidate, he could very well be incredibly influential in a future Democratic Congress, uh, as well as all the local states. Th that seems to be more of what he's actually trying to accomplish here. But time will tell Mike Murphy and Alex Stamos. Thank you both very much, guys. Good discussion. Have a good weekend. Thank you. All right. As debt Thank mounts you. at energy companies and oil prices stay stubbornly low-ish despite ongoing political tensions, can Wall Street or private equity come to the rescue for energy? Plus, mattress company Casper just filing for an IPO. We're going to have much more on that as markets earlier today hitting new record highs. We're back right after this. Well, this may be the scariest number that you will hear in the market this year. North American oil and gas companies have more than $200 billion in debt maturing in just the next four years, more than $600 billion in total debt. So if the energy debt crisis continues to worsen, could we see Wall Street or private equity come to the rescue? For more, we're joined now by Shia Hosanzada. He is Managing Director of Onyx Point Global Management. It's good to see you again, Shia. Thanks for joining us. Great to be back. Here's the pro you and I were just talking about this, the commercial break. Here's the problem. When you're private equity, you invest in a company because you have what they call the exit, right? You sell it to another company or you take it public and you make your giant return. No oil and gas companies are going public. Why would any private equity firm invest in oil and gas? Well, the short answer right now is that you have a lot of funds that have been invested during the 2014, 2013, 2015 timeframe. And the expectation was that a lot of those funds would have had realizations. The bigger problem uh, from our vantage point is we think the shale business model might be broken. It just does. Well, if you really think about it, um, for a $55 price of crude or 60 whatever it vacillates between, 
once you start to factor in the operating cost, the corporate G&A, the interest cost, and most important of all, the maintenance cost. Mm-hmm. So when you produce a barrel, the average shale company loses 50% of its production in the first 12 months. Once you load that all up, you've got $50 a barrel of just operating and replacement cost. And a lot of these companies don't just sell 100% oil. They've got natural gas. They've got liquids. We've got all kinds of bottlenecks going across the country. So these, com- these companies are basically only getting $35 a barrel. And that's why when we went to OPEC in December, sort of the theme that we had in the reporting and that was all, can OPEC save the U.S. oil and gas industry? And so I got some nasty grams about that. But the reality is, is that you're going to need 70, 65 to 85 to higher to really make this industry grow and be vibrant. Otherwise, you're just pumping oil to pay your debtors. You bring up an interesting point. So you look at OPEC in 2014. It was fighting a campaign for market share. You had a fight against shale barrels, Venezuela barrels, Iranian barrels. A lot of that has changed today. The OPEC no longer has to worry about market share the way it did in 2014. Venezuela's got all kinds of problems. Iran's under sanctions. You mentioned shale. And so OPEC is at a unique position right now where it can pivot from market share to price control. And you're going to get a lot of, let's be honest, Shai, you're going to get a lot of our audience that's listening or watching and thinking, good, let them rot. It's fossil fuels. It's the past. It's literally dinosaurs. Let's move forward. Here's the reality. Fossil fuel demand is not going to go away for the next 50 years, if anything, because of petrochemicals and everything else. But you're also talking about millions of jobs in this industry. This industry is so much larger than it was even 10 years ago that the economic impact of a major debt wipeout would be pretty significant, would it not? It would. And also, if you think about it from the standpoint of not just the industry itself, but all these other industries that consume the product, you have secondary and tertiary effects. You know, the one thing I would say about these divestment campaigns is they've been very successful. If you, if you, look, at, if you look at the market share impact on all of the oil and gas companies, we've lost $200 billion dollars of market share in just 12 months. Apple's market cap today exceeds the entire United States oil and gas market cap on a combined basis. The problem, though, is we're targeting supply. We want to be effective with yeah. decarbonization. You've got to create demand. Or have Exxon create a new smartphone. Shia Hosanzada, Onyx Point. Important conversation. I have a feeling we'll have it again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next week could be a huge one for biotech stocks and biotech investors. We're going to tell you the surprising reason why. Next. Deeper data at CNBC. U.S. consumer credit rose $12.5 billion during November. That's an annualized growth rate of 3.6%. Credit card debt fell while the amount of auto and student loans increased. Welcome back. The annual J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference kicks off on Monday. And if history is any guide, it could be a massive week for a particular segment of healthcare stocks. Meg Terrell joining us now with a look at what we can expect before she gets on a plane and heads west. That's right, Brian. This is the biggest healthcare investing event of the year, and it's a particularly big week for biotech. And J.P. Morgan's analyst team actually took a look at how biotech stocks have performed during the conference going back over the last 19 years. And they found that all but three of those years Biotech has outperformed the broader market by an average of 1.7%. Now, one of those three years where it didn't outperform, 2016.
2018. I think we have a look at the years going back to 2015. Uh, each day of the conference, you can see kind of how biotech stocks, judged by the Nasdaq Biotech Index, have performed. Uh, 2016 was quite a down year, and of course, that was the last presidential election year. So that leads to questions, are we going to see that kind of pressure this year in 2020 as we're heading into another presidential election? I spoke with Michael Gato, uh, J.P. Morgan's uh, global head of investment banking for healthcare, and he said there is pressure there, of course, but beyond 2016, looking back to more history, it doesn't pretend so much disruption. And what he pointed to really is we're going to see M&A in the space. It's going to be a bit. We look forward to all your great interviews. A hundred a day, I'm told. Meg Terrell. <laughs> Feels that way. Safe travels to look for. Great stuff. Safe travels. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.